Today is a Mother's Day. Mother's Day is a universal. We are not all mothers, but we all have a mothers. There is a nobody who does not have a mother. As everybody has a mother and the needs of mother, today I want to speak about one very important mother for all of us. This mother is a mother of all mothers. For without her, all mothers fall short of truly loving their children. That's the church. Church is a foundational mother for our life. Third century, church father from North Africa named Cyprian famously said this, No one can have God as a father who does not have church as a mother. No one can have God as a father who does not have church as a mother. If you don't have a church as your mother, you will not have a church as a father, I mean, God as a father. That's what Cyprian was saying. And some evangelical Christians misunderstood and rejected this statement on the ground that a Bible never taught a church membership as a requirement of a salvation. If you cannot call God as a father, that means you're not saved. And then, you know, that's how they reject this statement. But in the early church, where most people were illiterate, and before the New Testament was officially recognized until 4th century, it was a church that preserved the gospel and then continued apostolic teaching. So this symbolism of a church as a mother is used throughout the early church writings, uh, continues into medieval time, and though it may surprise some, was embraced by the Protestant reformers. John Calvin quotes Cyprian and refers to motherhood of a church throughout his famous book, Institute for Christian Religion. Calvin took the motherhood of the church so seriously that he even said the mark of a New Testament church is church discipline. He said church without discipline is a nominal church. It's like a mother who cannot discipline their children for love. So, church is a very important in our spiritual life. And many of us experience this truth. You know, when, uh, when, uh, when, we, when, uh, when life goes well, everything in life goes well, except the church life, I heard from many Christians that they feel it's like uh, having a, a, a very dysfunctional family. And then also, when people are going through some tough time, but they are in the uh, very loving church, they feel there is a great comfort and then they have this strength to go on. Uh, once I heard the testimony of a former president of a Dallas Baptist University, uh, Dr. Gary Cook. He is actually reason that I'm in Dallas because I had a one interview with him and they, on the spot he offered me a job and that's why I came to Dallas 2008 to teach. And uh, Gary Cook, he's from small town in Arkansas and also from very dysfunctional broken family. He did not have a happy home, but he had a very loving church family. The ladies and the older men of his small Baptist church care for him and encouraging him to follow God's calling and supporting his education from the time. 
They even taught him to play old manual church organ that he became a really great you know, organ player and I was impressed. He owed his life to Mother Church. It was church family that saved his life. Today on Mother's Day, I want us to read the story of the first church in history and reflect on the church as our spiritual mother that God provided for us. So let's turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 41 to 47, and let me read. Those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of the bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were to get together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple court. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with a glad and sincere heart, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily, those who are being saved. What makes a church essential? These days we are talking about what's essential, what's non-essential. So what makes a church essential? Or what precisely, what kind of church is an essential church? By the way, do you know they, there exist some churches which are not just non-essential, but actually toxic and harmful? I Every you know, pastor's conference, I hear stories of uh, such a toxic churches. Most churches go through a cycle of essential and uh, struggles. Essential, I mean, uh, thriving time and struggling time. As I pray, the forest becomes an essential church as a spiritual mother for everyone. I want us to know today the four functions or characters of essential church. Four functions or characters of an essential church. The first character or function uh, that Luke described about the first church of Jerusalem was this church, was a learning church, learning church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teach, teaching, verse 42. Here, verse 42, they are the 3,000 who heard and accepted Peter's first sermon or first Christian sermon in history on the day of Pentecost. And here I want us to duly note and remember one important biblical theological fact and principle, that is, people of a Pentecost are the people of the words. People of a Pentecost is a people of the word. People who witnessed the coming of the Holy Spirit and received the Holy Spirit were serious students of the Bible or God's Word. That's a true charismatic and biblical Pentecostal Christians. I have known many Pentecostal Christians from South America and South Korea who are enthusiastic about all kinds of a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, yet very ignorant and dangerously illiterate in basic biblical theology. So let me say very clearly, anyone who touched by the Holy Spirit, they love the Bible. Why? As many of us learned in Cornerstone Bible Study, the main work of the Holy Spirit 
is to help us to understand the words or teachings of Jesus personally, internally. So main work of the Holy Spirit is to communicate God's deep thought or heart to us through the word. So it is the Holy Spirit who inspired the biblical writers to write each book in the Bible. And also it is the same Holy Spirit who illuminates every reader to understand the meaning of that meaning of that word. In other, in, in other words, the Holy Spirit and Bible are inseparable. According to Paul, if you read Paul's letters carefully, Ephesians 5.18, Paul said, Do not get drunken, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, and then he said, Praising God and so forth. The same passage, Paul, I mean, Paul is in the next letter, Colossians chapter 3, Paul repeats the same thing a little differently. Both letters were written uh, by Paul at the same time and delivered by same person name, same letter carrier name Tychicus. And better in Colossians, Paul said, "Let the words of Christ dwell among you richly." And then you know again the same thing. So being filled with the Holy Spirit and then let the word of God, word of the Jesus, dwell in your heart richly. It goes together. So if you have spirit filled you will be drawn to the Bible. That's the biblical fact. That's a very different from the teaching of many contemporary charismatic movements which emphasize strange phenomenon and experiences. They say God is a you know, out-of-the-box kind of God. You know, God, does a, you know, God does unexpected thing. You know, God is out-of-the-box is right. But God is not out of the Bible. Make it clear. God is not out of the Bible. God revealed himself through the stories and the words in the Bible. And uh, once again, let me illustrate this. If you love someone, wouldn't you love to read the emails and texts and letters from that person? Well, those of you who don't have a girlfriend or boyfriend, let me, let me put it this way. When you like a sports team, do you just watch their game? Don't you love to read about them? I'm speaking more about brothers. Aren't some of your sports fans so sad about this pandemic that there's not much to read about your favorite teams? Don't you miss your daily devotion with the ESPN? You know, I gave up on ESPN. Ever since pandemic, you know, I, I read ESPN. My favorite section is a NCAA women's, you know, basketball team. Uh, yeah, I'm a fan of a college woman basketball team because uh, Baylor woman, Baylor Lady Bears, they are the, they are the one of the dynasties. They are the, they're the, anyway, they're the champions. They really inspired me. And anyway, why do we love to read about the games that actually I don't play well? It is a human nature to read and learn about the people that we care or subject that we like. So do you like God? Then how about God's word? Education, I want to say that church and throughout the history is a serious about education. Education for Christians is a deeply intrinsic and inherent in our faith. Learning and believing go together. Intellectual tradition in the West was a Christian legacy. 
If you look at the development of science and culture in the Western history, you will see church and Christians at its forefront. Who preserved the classical, uh, classical culture, the Greco-Roman intellectual tradition, when Roman Empire fell to the barbarians? It was the Christian monks and the monasteries that preserved and copied the writings of the Greek philosophers and the Roman thinkers. Not only church preserved the classical culture, but promoted Western world, prompted Western world to develop science, natural science. According to Atten Jolson, a renowned scholar on the medieval age, Christian theology brought the conviction to foster, develop scientific study of nature. Because up until then, people in the West, they saw nature superstitiously. That's why we call nature as a mother nature. But it was the Christian theologians who taught us nature is just another creation of God. Actually, nature is our younger sister because God put us in charge of nature. So in order to care for our younger sister, we need to study the younger sister. This is where theology became a queen of science and motivated other scientists to study about the nature. So without theology, there was no scientific development in the West. That's why old universities in the West, such as uh, Oxford and Paris University, they all came from the church. How about America, who spearheaded the intellectual tradition, our new world? Who started a higher education in America? Let me read an, an original mission statement of an American university, and you guess which school this was. All right. Let's, let me see the quote. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider, well, the end of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, who is eternal life, and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Anybody can guess which school was this? This is original mission statement of a small Bible college in Cambridge, Massachusetts, a.k.a. Harvard University. Brian, did you know you went to Bible college in Cambridge? You know Harvard Mato Veritas, which means a, a, a truth in Latin, was not an abstract truth but they're talking about biblical truth. It came from the John 14, 6, when Jesus said, I am the truth and life and the way. So when Harvard talks about the Veritas, they're talking about Jesus. How about Texas? Yes, I have to speak about Texas. Yes, my country. Oh, yeah, yes, my, my country. Yes, we're living in a country called Texas. Texas, you know the oldest university in Texas? Yes, it was a Baylor University, second bears. Before Longhorns and Aggies, you know, uh, they threatened, you know, we had a Baylor, Baylor bears. So Christians, we take our education seriously. At Forest, we take our learning seriously. And it is our commitment that every one of us become not just a... Uh, uh, Typical uh, Christian who learned the Bible in the Sunday schools and some 
uh, adult Bible studies, but someone who understands the Bible and handles it correctly. If you look at the 2 Corinthians 2.15, one of the last you know, uh, exhortations of Paul was that do your best to present yourself to God as a one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, but who correctly hands, handles the words of the truth. So Paul called us to be approved workers of God who knows the scripture and handles the scripture correctly. Not just somebody who reads, but somebody who can communicate the meaning of scripture to others. That's the purpose of our Good Shepherd College. Yes, we want everybody to sign up Shepherd College in our curriculum. If you follow through three years, I guarantee you, you will be better educated than most seminarians. I've been to seminary, I've been to Christian higher education, so I know all the, you know, I, I know enough of it. But many of us graduated with just a knowledge and did not really consolidate, you know, does not really uh, translate into the practical wisdom or ministry, you know, wisdom. Good Shepherd College, you'll get a great theology great biblical theology with a very practical and pastoral and uh, shepherding you know, angle. So we really encourage you to sign up with the Good Shepherd College as we begin summer, summer quarter soon. Now, second character and function of uh, essential church is that they are not only learning church, but they are also loving church. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to apostle teaching and to the fellowship. And verse 44 explains what kind of fellowship they had. All the believers who were together have everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. And better translation is according to need that anyone has. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. This word appears only once in the book of Acts. And that's this verse, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Uh, John Stott, great uh, English-British evangelical statesman, says, the word fellowship was born on the day of a Pentecost. I love it. The word fellowship was born on the day of a Pentecost. Fel this fellowship was not a typical church fellowship of a coffee, with a coffee and donut. It was a costly and radical fellowship. Nobody was claiming any exclusive right to their property and possessions. A commentator says, Trinity about possessions, time, talent, and treasures are filling the pool of the vortex of the Holy Spirit. That's a holy trinity of everybody. Time, talent, and then treasures. And then when you come to God, God is, Holy Spirit is calling you to use all this uh, Holy Trinity of your possessions for glory of God. This morning, I overheard that a youth, uh, a high school, I mean, girls in a Bible study sharing, and somebody mentioned uh, they're going through the uh, purpose-driven life of the 40 days, you know, uh, daily devotion, this uh, now, and then, you know, someone shared that uh, self-worth and networks are closely connected. And uh, I jokingly said, yeah, you don't have, you know, many of you don't have uh, not much net worth, but you have Jesus. Everything is Jesus is yours. Now, uh, who is, so here, 
they voluntarily liquidate and donate their money to, for others in need. By the way, who are the poor here? If you remember, the first church grew from 120 disciples to 3,000 new converts just one single day, day of Pentecost. Many of the new believers were Jewish pilgrims who came from all over the Roman Empire to attend the Passover, and then they stayed on till the Pentecost, and they never expected to stay longer than, longer than that. But after hearing Peter's preaching, they really want to know more about Jesus, and they stayed, and they ran out of their travel money, and that's what the need came up. And verse 45 said they sold and gave each other according to the need. The better translation would be they were selling and giving to uh, everyone who has a need. Because the original Greek verse is an imperfect tense. Imperfect tense means it's an ongoing, continuous action. So this uh, uh, sacrificial fellowship was not a one-time event but an ongoing practice of the first church. It's a recurrent. Here is the original communism. You know communism started from the scripture? And there is a major difference between biblical communism and political Marxist communism. Because one is voluntary and the other one is involuntary. Biblical communism is from friendship and trust. And the the other political, you know, communism is from fear and terror. The real communism was based in honest sharing of each other's need. You know, actually revealing your need, financial need to other people is a very, very shameful and intimidating thing. Who can do that? Only to people that you trust. So in the first church, there was no shame of revealing your need. And there is no, no pride or arrogance of providing the need, providing, you know, meeting the need. This is a church where everyone is uh, happy and rich with the love of God. Once the word koinonia, I have to say, I have say this. This is a well-known concept for the, uh, at the time in Greco-Roman world because this is the, a word for the utopian societies according to many uh, Greek philosophers. For instance, Plato in his book, Critias, said that koinonia of a friends is a non, uh, uh, koino, in the koinonia of a friends, none of his members possessed any private property, but they regarded all they had as a common property of all. So Luke actually used such a proverbial term to announce the utopian dream became a reality in the church of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And actually also, Luke was referring to Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 1 to 4. What, early, what the first church was doing was fulfilling the Old Testament dream of a community equality. So if you look at the Deuteronomy chapter 15, it said this, At the end of every seven years, you must cancel that. And uh, this is uh, how it is done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan that are made to fellow Israelites. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people, because the Lord's time 
for because the Lord's time for canceling debt has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you may cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. However, there needs be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, He will richly bless you. You know, this uh, dream of uh, 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 Moses' dream of a sabbatical, sabbatical community in Israel, eventually in the Promised Land, was uh, fulfilled by the first church. First church become a shalom community, the peaceful community of a peace, because they found that Jesus is the ultimate sabbatical. Jesus brought, brought us the ultimate sabbat, the rest. And later, John, in his first letter, said this, continuing this uh, spirit of a true fellowship. He said, if anyone has a material possession, see a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with the words or speeches, but with the actions and in truth. Fellowship of the first church, borrowing the Dietrich Bonhoeffer's word, was not a cheap superficial fellowship, but it's a costly and sacrificial fellowship. On that note, I want to express my gratitude to God and everyone in the forest who gave faithfully during this challenging pandemic. You know, our giving actually in the month of uh, uh, March, it kind of went down. So I was a little bit concerned. But in the uh, months of March, we actually, uh, it actually went up. And we were able to, you know, uh, help uh, our family members. So I'm really grateful that those of you giving uh, extra, all the savings you have, a little bit that you are contributing to Forest Family Relief Fund, we are really thank God and I really praise God for that. Now, third character of the first church is a church is not only learning and loving church, but it's a lifting church. The church was really, really worshiping God and lifting each other through the prayer. Verse 46, it said, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple court. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with a glad and sincere heart and praising God and enjoying favor of all people. Here we must remember these people are Jews and they worship God all their lifetime. So what's the big deal about their worship today? You know, their repentance and reception of the Holy Spirit reveal the true joy of a worship. What is the true joy of a worship? Here, twice in this passage, we heard that uh, the mention of a breaking of a bread. Break, they, they broke the bread. Breaking of the bread. That is a term for the communion. As we know, the communion came from Christ practice of a Passover meal, the Last Supper. So early church, or first church, they celebrated Passover meal in every worship, every time they get together. Because they found that Jesus is the eternal sacrificial Lamb of God for us. And through so their worship is really, really focused on the redemption of Christ. And they will stay, they, for them, it's not a no longer religious ritual. 
This is a radical revelation of a God's incredible love, love for all of us. So, looks at they ate together with a glad and sincere heart. I want us to do a little. Uh, I, I want us to know this uh, meaning of a glad and sincere heart. In Greek word for the glad is uh, agaliao. Agaliao is a uh, is a compound word. Uh, it came from agan, which means uh, uh, much or very. And then the rest of the word is a, came from the word called a halomai, jump or leap. So it means, glad means one jumps in high, one jumps in celebration. So this glad means they are jumping each other to giving each other a high five. That is the, you know, that is the picture that the word glad heart. What about the sincere? Sincere heart. It's a, it came from aphelotes. Once again, A is a negation. And the phelotes means a stone. Means without stone. That means uh, un, uh, un, uh, it's not rocky. It was actually a, a, a portraying the picture of a calm, perfectly still lake. So that's what it means. Sincerity. So one side, there was energy, excitement. And the other side, there is an incredible calmness and sincerity and focus and silence. So true worship has a mixed experience and joy and peace, excitement and calmness. It reminds us of the, a picture of a woman in the Mark chapter 16 who first discovered the news of Jesus Christ, what was their expression? The last word in the Mark chapter 16 was, they were afraid and bewildered. And they ran, but they couldn't talk to each other. Can you imagine that the, woman, the first eyewitnesses, this, uh, the, the, the woman disciples, they're looking at each other. And with a sure joy and excitement, and then also this holy fear, and uh, you know, that is a Mary. Do you know our rabbi is a redeemer? Our rabbi is a reason. Our rabbi is God. And they couldn't talk to each other. There was a joy, and there was calm, and too much joy, too much fear that they can't talk to each other. That is a true worship. True worship as a mixed experience of a joy and excitement, joy and calmness. Now, we also see a balanced worship here because they met at the temple court as well as their private homes. They probably met the uh, temp, uh, part of the temple court, the court of Gentile, court of woman, because that's the largest space. 3,000 of them, you know, there are not many places for them to meet in the temple. So this is where they met. And this is where, you know, praise God and then so forth. And also they met in the uh, individual private houses. So early church has a both corporate worship and the private worship. That's why we have a house church on Friday. We have a Sunday corporate worship. And what was it their worship is about? Their worship sharpened and strengthened their prayers. So they pray together. The ultimate goal of a worship, ultimate angle of a worship is a praying God. 
Jim Simbalaya, pastor of uh, Brooklyn Tabernacle, a mega church in the inner city, very interesting church, predominantly African-American church. Whereas uh, Jim Simbalaya's wife is a very, that, that one of the, that actually few white people in that inner city in Brooklyn. Very, very beautiful church. I, I visited there twice and I encourage you to check that church when you go to New York City. But Jim Simbalaya is a well-known national, international pastor, but he said this, No church, including the church that I pastor, should be measured by its attendance. He said every church should be measured by its attention to the Lord or Holy Spirit in prayer and the acts of obedience. I want to remind us, nothing, will, nothing great will happen in forest until we pray. Actually, I pray that uh, every, nothing will happen every house church until the prayer shepherds and everyone we pray. Because a blessings without prayer is not a blessing. Because we don't know how to handle. So I pray that we become, we pray more. That is my prayer. Let me come to final characters of essential church. And that actually that is a conclusion of today's message. The end, verse 47, says, Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. The essential church is a leading church. They lead people to Christ and God. And here we need to make a very important, you know, basic observation. That is a great commandment precedes a great commission. When we love one another, Jesus said, as I loved you, then the world will know you are my disciple. The world will know that I exist and that God is alive and active and the world will join to me through your love to each other. So great commandment precedes great commission. And the uh, I like uh, a pastor, uh, one pastor actually said this, you never have to advertise a fire. Everyone comes running when there is a fire. Likewise, if a, your church is on fire, you don't have to advertise it. Community will already know it. So true. The first church, the Jerusalem church, the essential church, their evangelism was so holistic and wholesome and attractive. The part that I love is that their, their evangelism was relational evangelism. It was a people drawn to them. It was not a typical confrontational evangelism. It's not individually done. It was a corporate. People were drawn to not only to Jesus, but to the church. People found that not only people are not just believing in God, but people find a place to belong to. And also, it is not a program-based one-time or event-based you know, evangelism, but it was everyday, ongoing evangelism. God was adding people every day. So that's what I mean. The evangelism was very relational and very holistic and very, very, it, it is natural, socially, naturally, every way is a wholesome. Now, why does evangelism matter? Why leading people to God matters? 
Evangelism is not individual personal religious conversion. Together, evangelism has a transformed the world with the love and truth of Jesus Christ. You know, this week, we all heard this uh, tragic story about Ahmad Arbery, that 25 years old, well, on, you know, had been alive, he's 26, was shot and killed in Brunswick, Georgia, Georgia, while he was jogging in a neighborhood on February 25th. After he was chased down by two men, a father and son. The men, George Michael and Travis Michael, they've been charged. Not immediately, but uh, two months later, when the video was leaked out. And the whole world, I mean, a lot of people are upset about it. And they sure, you know, many of us are upset. I mean, I mean, probably all of us are upset. And uh, I want us to rem- I-, I want us to actually think about this is not just as, just another news item, but it is. It is a call for our call for the church. I want us to know very clearly that I don't want to demonize this uh, uh, father son my Mac Michaels individually. What I want us to really really face is that we need to demonize this uh, demonic racial prejudice in our country. Along with that, I want to call also our own negligence and arrogance that these are the bad, you know, racist white people. A lot of my middle daughter's uh, African-American colleague actually sent a very apt, you know, uh, uh, text to uh, the, the co-workers that if you really want to do something about this, Call your African-American friend and ask them how they do. And the second actually recommendation is, is, is really convict me. And her friend said, if you don't have any African-American friend, then you know that you are the part of the problem. I don't have an African-American friend. So... I cannot be self-righteous. You know, Georgia is a major part of a Bible Belt. There are a lot of churches. Baptists, is every, every, every block there's a Baptist church. Yet the, this Bible Belt is known for slavery and post-slavery racial prejudice. You know, Flannery O'Connor is a, one of my, I mean, it's my favorite American, you know, Christian writer. And Flannery O'Connor, if there's a picture, we'll see, you know, she's a one of, she's a really. She said, while South is a hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-hunted. Yes, that's what she said. And uh, if you, Flannery O'Connor, I just want to say, is a great writer. She wrote a lot of short stories. She died prematurely at the age of 39. And if you re- and there are a lot of a uh, uh, theme of racism and the gospel comes out of writing. And the one uh, one uh, book that I recommend on this is that a, uh, a short story called the, the Displaced Person. The Displaced Person. 
Google and check it out. It's a really incredibly revealing story about uh, racism. It's, there is a no boundary. We are all in it as a bystander and perpetrators and so forth. And the place where we call it Bible Belt or Bible worshiping Christians everywhere, that's where the racial prejudice is the most acute. This is why we cannot just tell people about believing Jesus, but bring them to the church and mix with each other. Different people come together and really learn from each other and see that a gospel is a trans-ethnic, trans-national, trans-color. Frederick Nietzsche said, Madness is rare in an individual. By that he means, rarely people do crazy stuff, such as killing other person. You know, but he said, when it comes to groups and parties and nations, madness is common. That means individually we don't do crazy things, but collectively we do crazy things, such as killing other, other people, sons and daughters of other mothers in the name of my country, or patriotic duty. Nietzsche was absolutely right. Madness. It's very, very collective in many cases. In America, we have this demon called racial prejudice. And unknowingly, you and I are infected by this. Racial prejudice is worse than COVID-19. There's no vaccine for it. There's no antibody for it. Only thing can cure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Jesus blood is the same blood for everybody, white, yellow, black. And he gave his blood for every one of us. And our church, we sign up for the same cause and battle. So dear brothers and sisters, let us not be self-righteous about this, uh, uh, this, tragedy, this, this tragedy, that I wouldn't do that. But rather repent. And let's pray. The forest will grow and reflect this incredible, radical love of God to each other, to everyone, so that we can really glorify God. Let us pray.